Chapter Fifteen of the Oregon Trail. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter Fifteen: The Hunting Camp. Long before daybreak, the Indians broke up their camp. The women of Menesila's lodge were, as usual, among the first that were ready for departure, and I found the old man himself sitting by the embers of the decayed fire over which he was warming his withered fingers, as the morning was very chilly and damp. The preparations for moving were even more confused and disorderly than usual. While some families were leaving the ground, the lodges of others were still standing untouched. At this old Menesila grew impatient, and walking out to the middle of the village, stood with his robe wrapped close around him, and harangued the people in a loud, sharp voice. Now, he said, when they were on an enemy's hunting grounds, was not the time to behave like children. They ought to be more active and united than ever. His speech had some effect. The delinquents took down their lodges and loaded their pack-horses, and when the sun rose, the last of the men, women, and children had left the deserted camp. This movement was made merely for the purpose of finding a better and safer position. So we advanced only three or four miles up the little stream, before each family assumed its relative place in the great ring of the village, and all around the squaws were actively at work in preparing the camp. But not a single warrior dismounted from his horse. All the men that morning were mounted on inferior animals, leading their best horses by a cord, or confiding them to the care of boys. In small parties they began to leave the ground and ride rapidly away over the plains to the westward. I had taken no food that morning, and not being at all ambitious of further abstinence, I went into my host's lodge which his squaws had erected with wonderful celerity, and sat down in the center, as a gentle hint that I was hungry. A wooden bowl was soon set before me, filled with a nutritious preparation of dried meat called pemmican by the northern voyagers, and wasna by the Dakota. Taking a handful to break my fast upon, I left the lodge just in time to see the last band of hunters disappear over the ridge of the neighboring hill. I mounted Pauline and galloped in pursuit, riding rather by the balance than by any muscular strength that remained to me. From the top of the hill I could overlook a wide extent of desolate and unbroken prairie, over which, far and near, little parties of naked horsemen were rapidly passing. I soon came up to the nearest, and we had not ridden a mile before all were united into one large and compact body. All was haste and eagerness. Each hunter was whipping on his horse, as if anxious to be the first to reach the game. In such movements among the Indians this is always more or less the case, but it was especially so in the present instance, because the head chief of the village was absent, and there were but few soldiers, a sort of Indian police, who among their other functions usually assumed the direction of a buffalo hunt. No man turned to the right hand or to the left. We rode at a swift canter, straight forward, uphill and downhill, and through the stiff, obstinate growth of the endless wild sage bushes. For an hour and a half the same red shoulders, the same long black hair, rose and fell with the motion of the horses before me. Very little was said, though once I observed an old man severely reproving Raymond for having left his rifle behind him, when there was some probability of encountering an enemy before the day was over. As we galloped across a plain thickly set with sagebrushes, the foremost riders vanished suddenly from sight, as if diving into the earth. 
the arid soil was cracked into a deep ravine. Down we all went in succession and galloped in a line along the bottom until we found a point where, one by one, the horses could scramble out. Soon after we came upon a wide, shallow stream, and as we rode swiftly over the hard sand-beds and through the thin sheets of rippling water, many of the savage horsemen threw themselves to the ground, knelt on the sand, snatched a hasty draught, and leaping back again to their seats, galloped on again, as before. Meanwhile, scouts kept in advance of the party, and now we began to see them on the ridge of the hills, waving their robes in token that buffalo were visible. These, however, proved to be nothing more than old straggling bulls feeding upon the neighboring plains, who would stare for a moment at the hostile array, and then gallop clumsily off. At length we could discern several of these scouts making their signals to us at once, no longer waving their robes boldly from the top of the hill, but standing lower down, so that they could not be seen from the plains beyond. Game worth pursuing had evidently been discovered. The excited Indians now urged forward their tired horses even more rapidly than before. Pauline, who was still sick and jaded, began to groan heavily, and her yellow sides were darkened with sweat. As we were crowding together over a lower intervening hill, I heard Reynal and Raymond shouting to me from the left, and looking in that direction I saw them riding away behind a party of about twenty mean-looking Indians. These were the relatives of Reynal's squaw Margot, who, not wishing to take part in the general hunt, were riding toward a distant hollow, where they could discern a small band of buffalo which they meant to appropriate to themselves. I answered to the call by ordering Raymond to turn back and follow me. He reluctantly obeyed, though Reynal, who had relied on his assistance in skinning, cutting up, and carrying to camp the buffalo that he and his party should kill, loudly protested, and declared that we should see no sport if we went with the rest of the Indians. Followed by Raymond, I pursued the main body of hunters, while Reynal, in a great rage, whipped his horse over the hill after his ragamuffin relatives. The Indians, still about a hundred in number, rode in a dense body at some distance in advance. They galloped forward, and a cloud of dust was flying in the wind behind them. I could not overtake them until they had stopped on the side of the hill where the scouts were standing. Here each hunter sprang in haste from the tired animal which he had ridden, and leaped upon the fresh horse that he had brought with him. There was not a saddle or a bridle in the whole party. A piece of buffalo robe girthed over the horse's back served in place of the one, and a cord of twisted hair lashed firmly round his lower jaw answered for the other. Eagle feathers were dangling from every mane and tail as insignia of courage and speed. As for the rider, he wore no other clothing than a light cincture at his waist and a pair of moccasins. He had a heavy whip with a handle of solid elk horn and a lash of knotted bull-hide fastened to his wrist by an ornamental band. His bow was in his hand, and his quiver of otter or panther skin hung at his shoulder. Thus equipped, some thirty of the hunters galloped away toward the left, in order to make a circuit under cover of the hills, that the buffalo might be assailed on both sides at once. The rest impatiently waited until time enough had elapsed for their companions to reach the required position. Then, riding upward in a body, we gained the ridge of the hill, and for the first time came in sight of the buffalo on the plain beyond. 
They were a band of cows, four or five hundred in number, who were crowded together near the bank of a wide stream that was soaking across the sand beds of the valley. This was a large circular basin, sun-scorched and broken, scantily covered with herbage and encompassed with high barren hills, from an opening in which we could see our allies galloping out upon the plain. The wind blew from that direction. The buffalo were aware of their approach and had begun to move, though very slowly and in a compact mass. I have no further recollection of seeing the game until we were in the midst of them, for as we descended the hill other objects engrossed my attention. Numerous old bulls were scattered over the plain, and ungallantly deserting their charge at our approach, began to wade and plunge through the treacherous quicksands or the stream, and gallop away toward the hills. One old veteran was struggling behind all the rest with one of his forelegs, which had been broken by some accident, dangling about uselessly at his side. His appearance, as he went shambling along on three legs, was so ludicrous that I could not help pausing for a moment to look at him. As I came near, he would try to rush upon me, nearly throwing himself down at every awkward attempt. Looking up, I saw the whole body of Indians full a hundred yards in advance. I lashed Pauline in pursuit and reached them just in time, for as we mingled among them, each hunter, as if by a common impulse, violently struck his horse. Each horse sprang forward convulsively, and scattering in the charge in order to assail the entire herd at once, we all rushed headlong upon the buffalo. We were among them in an instant. Amid the trampling and the yells I could see their dark figures running hither and thither through clouds of dust, and the horsemen darting in pursuit. While we were charging on one side, our companions had attacked the bewildered and panic-stricken herd on the other. The uproar and confusion lasted but for a moment. The dust cleared away, and the buffalo could be seen scattering as from a common center, flying over the plain singly or in long files and small compact bodies, while behind each followed the Indians, lashing their horses to furious speed, forcing them close upon their prey, and yelling as they launched arrow after arrow into their sides. The large black carcasses were strewn thickly over the ground. Here and there wounded buffalo were standing, their bleeding sides feathered with arrows, and as I rode past them their eyes would glare. They would bristle like gigantic cats and feebly attempt to rush up and gore my horse. I left camp that morning with a philosophic resolution. Neither I nor my horse were at that time fit for such sport, and I had determined to remain a quiet spectator. But amid the rush of horses and buffalo, the uproar and the dust, I found it impossible to sit still and as four or five buffalo ran past me in a line, I drove Pauline in pursuit. We went plunging close at their heels through the water and the quicksands, and clambering the bank chased them through the wild sage bushes that covered the rising ground beyond. But neither her native spirit nor the blows of the knotted bullhide could supply the place of poor Pauline's exhausted strength. We could not gain an inch upon the poor fugitives. At last, however, they came full upon a ravine too wide to leap over, and as this compelled them to turn abruptly to the left, I contrived to get within ten or twelve yards of the hindmost. At this she faced about, bristled angrily, and made a show of charging. I shot at her with a large holster pistol and hit her somewhere in the neck. Down she tumbled into the ravine, whither her companions had descended before her. 
I saw their dark backs appearing and disappearing as they galloped along the bottom. Then, one by one, they came scrambling out on the other side and ran off as before, the wounded animal following with unabated speed. Turning back, I saw Raymond coming on his black mule to meet me, and as we rode over the field together, we counted dozens of carcasses lying on the plain, in the ravines, and on the sandy bed of the stream. Far away in the distance, horses and buffalo were still scouring along, with little clouds of dust rising behind them, and over the sides of the hills we could see long files of the frightened animals rapidly ascending. The hunters began to return. The boys who had held the horses behind the hill made their appearance, and the work of flaying and cutting up began in earnest all over the field. I noticed my host, Kangratanga, beyond the stream, just alighting by the side of a cow which he had killed. Riding up to him, I found him in the act of drawing out an arrow, which, with the exception of the notch at the end, had entirely disappeared in the animal. I asked him to give it to me, and I still retain it as a proof, though by no means the most striking one that could be offered, of the force and dexterity with which the Indians discharged their arrows. The hides and meat were piled upon the horses, and the hunters began to leave the ground. Raymond and I, too, getting tired of the scene, set out for the village, riding straight across the intervening desert. There was no path, and as far as I could see, no landmarks sufficient to guide us. But Raymond seemed to have an instinctive perception of the point on the horizon toward which we ought to direct our course. Antelope were bounding on all sides and as is always the case in the presence of buffalo, they seem to have lost their natural shyness and timidity. Bands of them would run lightly up the rocky declivities and stand gazing down upon us from the summit. At length we could distinguish the tall white rocks and the old pine trees that, as we well remembered, were just above the site of the encampment. Still we could see nothing of the village itself, until, ascending a grassy hill, we found the circle of lodges dingy with storms and smoke, standing on the plain at our very feet. I entered the lodge of my host. His squaw instantly brought me food and water and spread a buffalo robe for me to lie upon, and being much fatigued, I lay down and fell asleep. In about an hour the entrance of Kongratanga, with his arms smeared with blood to the elbows, awoke me. He sat down in his usual seat on the left side of the lodge. His squaw gave him a vessel of water for washing, set before him a bowl of boiled meat, and as he was eating, pulled off his bloody moccasins and placed fresh ones on his feet. Then, outstretching his limbs, my host composed himself to sleep. And now the hunters, two or three at a time, began to come rapidly in, and each consigning his horses to the squaws, entered his lodge with the air of a man whose day's work was done. The squaws flung down the load from the burdened horses, and vast piles of meat and hides were soon accumulated before every lodge. By this time it was darkening fast, and the whole village was illumined by the glare of fires blazing all around. All the squaws and children were gathered about the piles of meat, exploring them in search of the daintiest portions. Some of these they roasted on sticks before the fires, but often they dispensed with this superfluous operation. Late into the night the fires were still glowing upon the groups of feasters engaged in this savage banquet around them. Several hunters sat down by the fire in Kangratanga's lodge to talk over the day's exploits. Among the rest, Menesila came in. 
though he must have seen full eighty winters he had taken an active share in the day's sport he boasted that he had killed two cows that morning and would have killed a third if the dust had not blinded him so that he had to drop his bow and arrows and press both hands against his eyes to stop the pain the firelight fell upon his wrinkled face and shriveled figure as he sat telling his story with such inimitable gesticulation that every man in the lodge broke into a laugh Old Menesila was one of the few Indians in the village with whom I would have trusted myself alone without suspicion, and the only one from whom I would have received a gift or a service without the certainty that it proceeded from an interested motive. He was a great friend to the whites. He liked to be in their society, and was very vain of the favors he had received from them. He told me one afternoon, as we were sitting together in his son's lodge, that he considered the beaver and the whites the wisest people on earth indeed he was convinced they were the same and an incident which had happened to him long before had assured him of this so he began the following story and as the pipe passed in turn to him reynal availed himself of these interruptions to translate what had preceded but the old man accompanied his words with such admirable pantomime that translation was hardly necessary he said that when he was very young and had never yet seen a white man he and three or four of his companions were out on a beaver hunt and he crawled into a large beaver lodge to examine what was there sometimes he was creeping on his hands and knees sometimes he was obliged to swim and sometimes to lie flat on his face and drag himself along in this way he crawled a great distance underground it was very dark cold and close so that at last he was almost suffocated and fell into a swoon when he began to recover he could just distinguish the voices of his companions outside who had given him up for lost and were singing his death song at first he could see nothing but soon he discerned something white before him and at length plainly distinguished three people entirely white one man and two women sitting at the edge of a black pool of water he became alarmed and thought it high time to retreat having succeeded after great trouble in reaching daylight again he went straight to the spot directly above the pool of water where he had seen the three mysterious beings here he beat a hole with his war-club in the ground and sat down to watch in a moment the nose of an old male beaver appeared at the opening Menesila instantly seized him and dragged him up, when two other beavers, both females, thrust out their heads, and these he served in the same way. These, continued the old man, must have been the three white people whom I saw sitting at the edge of the water. Menesila was the grand depository of the legends and traditions of the village. I succeeded, however, in getting from him only a few fragments. Like all Indians, he was excessively superstitious, and continually saw some reason for withholding his stories. It is a bad thing, he would say, to tell tales in summer. Stay with us till next winter, and I will tell you everything I know. But now our war parties are going out, and our young men will be killed if I sit down to tell stories before the frost begins. But to leave this digression, we remained encamped on this spot five days, during three of which the hunters were at work incessantly, and immense quantities of meat and hides were brought in. Great alarm, however, prevailed in the village. All were on the alert. The young men were ranging through the country as scouts, and the old men paid careful attention to omens and prodigies, and especially to their dreams. 
in order to convey to the enemy, who, if they were in the neighborhood, must inevitably have known of our presence, the impression that we were constantly on the watch, piles of sticks and stones were erected on all the surrounding hills, in such a manner as to appear at a distance like sentinels. Often, even to this hour, that scene will rise before my mind like a visible reality. The tall white rocks, the old pine trees on their summits, the sandy stream that ran along their bases and half encircled the village, and the wild sage-bushes with their dull green hue and their medicinal odor that covered all the neighboring declivities. Hour after hour the squaws would pass and repass with their vessels of water between the stream and the lodges. For the most part no one was to be seen in the camp but women and children, two or three superannuated old men, and a few lazy and worthless young ones. These, together with the dogs, now grown fat and good-natured with the abundance in the camp, were its only tenants. Still it presented a busy and bustling scene. In all quarters the meat hung on cords of hide was drying in the sun, and around the lodges the squaws, young and old, were laboring on the fresh hides that were stretched upon the ground, scraping the hair from one side and the still-adhering flesh from the other, and rubbing into them the brains of the buffalo in order to render them soft and pliant. In mercy to myself and my horse, I never went out with the hunters after the first day. Of late, however, I had been gaining strength rapidly, as was always the case upon every respite of my disorder. I was soon able to walk with ease. Raymond and I would go out upon the neighboring prairies to shoot antelope, or sometimes to assail straggling buffalo on foot, an attempt in which we met with rather indifferent success. To kill a bull with a rifle ball is a difficult art, in the secret of which I was as yet very imperfectly initiated. As I came out of Congratonga's lodge one morning, Reynal called to me from the opposite side of the village and asked me over to breakfast. The breakfast was a substantial one. It consisted of the rich, juicy hump-ribs of a fat cow, a repast absolutely unrivaled. It was roasting before the fire, impaled upon a stout stick, which Reynal took up and planted in the ground before his lodge, when he, with Raymond and myself, taking our seats around it, unsheathed our knives and assailed it with good will. In spite of all medical experience, this solid fare without bread or salt seemed to agree with me admirably. "'We shall have strangers here before night,' said Reynal. "'How do you know that?' I asked. "'I dreamed so. I am as good at dreaming as an Indian. There is the hailstorm. He dreamed the same thing, and he and his crony the rabbit have gone out on discovery.' I laughed at Reynal for his credulity, went over to my host's lodge, took down my rifle, walked out a mile or two on the prairie, saw an old bull standing alone, crawled up a ravine, shot him, and saw him escape. Then, quite exhausted and rather ill-humored, I walked back to the village. By a strange coincidence, Reynal's prediction had been verified, for the first persons whom I saw were the two trappers, Rouleau and Sarafin, coming to meet me. These men, as the reader may possibly recollect, had left our party about a fortnight before. They had been trapping for a while among the Black Hills, and were now on their way to the Rocky Mountains, intending in a day or two to set out for the neighboring Medicine Bow. They were not the most elegant or refined of companions, yet they made a very welcome addition to the limited society of the village. For the rest of that day we lay smoking and talking in Reynal's lodge. 
This indeed was no better than a little hut made of hides stretched on poles, and entirely open in front. It was well carpeted with soft buffalo robes, and here we remained, sheltered from the sun, surrounded by various domestic utensils of Madame Margot's household. All was quiet in the village. Though the hunters had not gone out that day, they lay sleeping in their lodges, and most of the women were silently engaged in their heavy tasks. A few young men were playing a lazy game of ball in the center of the village, and when they became tired, some girls supplied their place with a more boisterous sport. At a little distance among the lodges, some children and half-grown squaws were playfully tossing up one of their number in a buffalo robe, an exact counterpart of the ancient pastime from which Sancho Panza suffered so much. Farther out on the prairie, a host of little naked boys were roaming about, engaged in various rough games, or pursuing birds and ground squirrels with their bows and arrows, and woe to the unhappy little animals that fell into their merciless, torture-loving hands. A squaw from the next lodge, a notable active housewife named Wea Washte, or the Good Woman, brought us a large bowl of wasna, and went into an ecstasy of delight when I presented her with a green glass ring, such as I usually wore with a view to similar occasions. The sun went down and half the sky was growing fiery red, reflected on the little stream as it wound away among the sage bushes. Some young men left the village and soon returned, driving in before them all the horses, hundreds in number, and of every size, age, and color. The hunters came out, and each securing those that belonged to him, examined their condition, and tied them fast by long cords to stakes driven in front of his lodge. It was half an hour before the bustle subsided and tranquillity was restored again. By this time it was nearly dark. Kettles were hung over the blazing fires, around which the squaws were gathered with their children, laughing and talking merrily. A circle of a different kind was formed in the center of the village. This was composed of the old men and warriors of repute, who with their white buffalo robes drawn close around their shoulders, sat together, and as the pipe passed from hand to hand, their conversation had not a particle of the gravity and reserve usually ascribed to Indians. I sat down with them as usual. I had in my hand half a dozen squibs and serpents which I had made one day when encamped upon Laramie Creek out of gunpowder and charcoal, and the leaves of Fremont's expedition rolled round a stout lead pencil. I waited till I contrived to get hold of the large piece of burning bois de vache which the Indians kept by them on the ground for lighting their pipes. With this I lighted all the fireworks at once, and tossed them whizzing and sputtering into the air over the heads of the company. They all jumped up and ran off with yelps of astonishment and consternation. After a moment or two they ventured to come back one by one, and some of the boldest, picking up the cases of burnt paper that were scattered about, examined them with eager curiosity to discover their mysterious secret. From that time forward I enjoyed great repute as a fire medicine. The camp was filled with the low hum of cheerful voices. There were other sounds, however, of a very different kind, for from a large lodge, lighted up like a gigantic lantern by the blazing fire within, came a chorus of dismal cries and wailings, long drawn out, like the howling of wolves, and a woman almost naked was crouching close outside, crying violently, and gashing her legs with a knife till they were covered with blood. Just a year before, a young man belonging to this family had gone out with a war party.
party and had been slain by the enemy, and his relatives were thus lamenting his loss. Still other sounds might be heard, loud earnest cries often repeated from amid the gloom at a distance beyond the village. They proceeded from some young men who, being about to set out in a few days on a warlike expedition, were standing at the top of a hill calling on the great spirit to aid them in their enterprise. While I was listening, Rouleau, with a laugh on his careless face, called to me and directed my attention to another quarter. In front of the lodge where Weawashte lived, another squaw was standing, angrily scolding an old yellow dog, who lay on the ground with his nose resting between his paws, and his eyes turned sleepily up to her face, as if he were pretending to give respectful attention, but resolved to fall asleep as soon as it was all over. "'You ought to be ashamed of yourself,' said the old woman. "'I have fed you well and taken care of you ever since you were small and blind "'and could only crawl about and squeal a little, instead of howling as you do now. "'When you grew old, I said you were a good dog. "'You were strong and gentle when the load was put on your back, "'and you never ran among the feet of the horses "'when we were all traveling together over the prairie. "'But you had a bad heart. Whenever a rabbit jumped out of the bushes, you were always the first to run after him and lead away all the other dogs behind you. You ought to have known that it was very dangerous to act so. When you had got far out on the prairie and no one was near to help you, perhaps a wolf would jump out of the ravine, and then what could you do? You would certainly have been killed, for no dog can fight well with a load on his back. Only three days ago you ran off in that way, and turned over the bag of wooden pins with which I used to fasten up the front of the lodge. Look up there, and you will see that it is all flapping open. And now to-night you have stolen a great piece of fat meat which was roasting before the fire for my children. I tell you, you have a bad heart, and you must die. So saying, the squaw went into the lodge, and coming out with a large stone mallet, killed the unfortunate dog at one blow. This speech is worthy of notice as illustrating a curious characteristic of the Indians, the ascribing intelligence and a power of understanding speech to the inferior animals, to whom, indeed, according to many of their traditions, they are linked in close affinity, and they even claim the honor of a lineal descent from bears, wolves, deer, or tortoises. As it grew late and the crowded population began to disappear, I too walked across the village to the lodge of my host, Kangratanga. As I entered, I saw him, by the flickering blaze of the fire in the center, reclining half asleep in his usual place. His couch was by no means an uncomfortable one. It consisted of soft buffalo robes laid together on the ground, and a pillow made of whitened deerskin stuffed with feathers and ornamented with beads. At his back was a light framework of poles and slender reeds, against which he could lean with ease when in a sitting posture, and at the top of it, just above his head, his bow and quiver were hanging. His squaw, a laughing, broad-faced woman, apparently had not yet completed her domestic arrangements, for she was bustling about the lodge, pulling over the utensils and the bales of dried meats that were ranged carefully round it. Unhappily, she and her partner were not the only tenants of the dwelling, for half a dozen children were scattered about, sleeping in every imaginable posture. My saddle was in its place at the head of the lodge, and a buffalo robe was spread on the ground before it. Wrapping myself in my blanket, I lay down, but had I not been extremely fatigued, the noise in the next lodge would have prevented my sleeping. 
there was the monotonous thumping of the Indian drum, mixed with occasional sharp yells and a chorus chanted by twenty voices. A grand scene of gambling was going forward, with all the appropriate formalities. The players were staking on the chance issue of the game, their ornaments, their horses, and, as the excitement rose, their garments, and even their weapons, for desperate gambling is not confined to the hells of Paris. The men of the plains and the forests no less resort to it as a violent but grateful relief to the tedious monotony of their lives, which alternate between fierce excitement and listless inaction. I fell asleep with the dull notes of the drum still sounding on my ear, but these furious orgies lasted without intermission till daylight. I was soon awakened by one of the children crawling over me, while another larger one was tugging at my blanket and nestling himself in a very disagreeable proximity. I immediately repelled these advances by punching the heads of these miniature savages with a short stick which I always kept by me for the purpose, and as sleeping half the day and eating much more than is good for them makes them extremely restless, this operation usually had to be repeated four or five times in the course of the night. My host himself was the author of another most formidable annoyance. All these Indians, and he among the rest, think themselves bound to the constant performance of certain acts as the condition on which their success in life depends, whether in war, love, hunting, or any other employment. These medicines, as they are called in that country, which are usually communicated in dreams, are often absurd enough. Some Indians will strike the butt of the pipe against the ground every time they smoke. Others will insist that everything they say shall be interpreted by contraries. And Shaw once met an old man who conceived that all would be lost unless he compelled every white man he met to drink a bowl of cold water. My host was particularly unfortunate in his allotment. The great spirit had told him in a dream that he must sing a certain song in the middle of every night and regularly at about twelve o'clock his dismal monotonous chanting would awaken me, and I would see him seated bolt upright on his couch, going through his dolorous performances with a most business-like air. There were other voices of the night still more inharmonious. Twice or thrice, between sunset and dawn, all the dogs in the village, and there were hundreds of them, would bay and yelp in chorus, a most horrible clamor resembling no sound that I have ever heard, except perhaps the frightful howling of wolves that we used sometimes to hear long afterward when descending the Arkansas on the trail of General Kearney's army. The canine uproar is, if possible, more discordant than that of the wolves. Heard at a distance, slowly rising on the night, it has a strange, unearthly effect, and would fearfully haunt the dreams of a nervous man but when you are sleeping in the midst of it the din is outrageous. One long howl from the next lodge perhaps begins it, and voice after voice takes up the sound till it passes around the whole circumference of the village, and the air is filled with confused and discordant cries, at once fierce and mournful. It lasts but for a moment, and then dies away into silence. Morning came, and Kongratonga, mounting his horse, rode out with the hunters. It may not be amiss to glance at him for an instant in his domestic character of husband and father. Both he and his squaw, like most other Indians, were very fond of their children, whom they indulged to excess and never punished, except in extreme cases when they would throw a bowl of cold water over them. 
their offspring became sufficiently undutiful and disobedient under this system of education which tends not a little to foster that wild idea of liberty and utter intolerance of restraint which lie at the very foundation of the indian character it would be hard to find a fonder father than Congratanga. there was one urchin in particular rather less than two feet high to whom he was exceedingly attached and sometimes spreading a buffalo robe in the lodge he would seat himself upon it place his small favorite upright before him and chant in a low tone some of the words used as an accompaniment to the war-dance the little fellow who could just manage to balance himself by stretching out both arms would lift his feet and turn slowly round and round in time to his father's music while my host would laugh with delight and look smiling up into my face to see if i were admiring this precocious performance of his offspring in his capacity of husband he was somewhat less exemplary the squaw who lived in the lodge with him had been his partner for many years she took good care of his children and his household concerns he liked her well enough and as far as i could see they never quarrelled but all his warmer affections were reserved for younger and more recent favourites of these he had at present only one who lived in a lodge apart from his own one day while in his camp he became displeased with her pushed her out threw after her her ornaments dresses and everything she had and told her to go home to her father having consummated this summary divorce for which he could show good reasons he came back seated himself in his usual place and began to smoke with an air of utmost tranquillity and self-satisfaction i was sitting in the lodge with him on that very afternoon when i felt some curiosity to learn the history of the numerous scars that appeared on his naked body of some of them however i did not venture to inquire for i already understood their origin each of his arms was marked as if deeply gashed with a knife at regular intervals and there were other scars also of a different character on his back and on either breast they were the traces of those formidable tortures which these indians in common with a few other tribes inflict upon themselves at certain seasons in part it may be to gain the glory of courage and endurance but chiefly as an act of self-sacrifice to secure the favor of the great spirit the scars upon the breast and back were produced by running through the flesh strong splints of wood to which ponderous buffalo skulls are fastened by cords of hide and the wretch runs forward with all his strength assisted by two companions who take hold of each arm until the flesh tears apart and the heavy loads are left behind others of Congratanga's scars were the result of accidents but he had many which he received in war he was one of the most noted warriors in the village in the course of his life he had slain as he boasted to me fourteen men and though like other indians he was a great braggart and utterly regardless of truth yet in this statement common report bore him out being much flattered by my inquiries he told me tale after tale true or false of his warlike exploits and there was one among the rest illustrating the worst features of the indian character too well for me to omit pointing out of the opening of the lodge toward the medicine bow mountain not many miles distant he said that he was there a few summers ago with a war party of his young men here they found two snake indians hunting they shot one of them with arrows and chased the other up the side of the mountain till they surrounded him on a level place and Congratanga himself 
jumping forward among the trees, seized him by the arm. Two of his young men then ran up and held him fast while he scalped him alive. Then they built a great fire, and cutting the tendons of their captive's wrists and feet, threw him in, and held him down with long poles until he was burnt to death. He garnished his story with a great many descriptive particulars much too revolting to mention. His features were remarkably mild and open, without the fierceness of expression common among these Indians, and as he detailed these devilish cruelties, he looked up into my face with the same air of earnest simplicity which a little child would wear in relating to its mother some anecdote of its youthful experience. Old Menesila's lodge could offer another illustration of the ferocity of Indian warfare. A bright-eyed, active little boy was living there. He had belonged to a village of the Grovantra Blackfeet, a small but bloody and treacherous band in close alliance with the Arapahoes. About a year before, Congratanga and a party of warriors had found about twenty lodges of these Indians upon the plains a little to the eastward of our present camp, and, surrounding them in the night, they butchered men, women, and children without mercy, preserving only this little boy alive. He was adopted into the old man's family, and was now fast becoming identified with the Ogallala children, among whom he mingled on equal terms. There was also a crow warrior in the village, a man of gigantic stature and most symmetrical proportions. Having been taken prisoner many years before, and adopted by a squaw in place of a son whom she had lost, he had forgotten his old national antipathies, and was now both in act and inclination an Ogallala. It will be remembered that the scheme of the grand warlike combination against the Snake and Crow Indians originated in this village, and though this plan had fallen to the ground, the embers of the martial ardor continued to glow brightly. Eleven young men had prepared themselves to go out against the enemy. The fourth day of our stay in this camp was fixed upon for their departure. At the head of this party was a well-built, active little Indian, called the White Shield, whom I had always noticed for the great neatness of his dress and appearance. His lodge, too, though not a large one, was the best in the village. His squaw was one of the prettiest girls, and altogether his dwelling presented a complete model of an Ogallala domestic establishment. I was often a visitor there, for the White Shield, being rather partial to white men, used to invite me to continual feasts at all hours of the day. Once, when the substantial part of the entertainment was concluded, and he and I were seated cross-legged on a buffalo robe, smoking together very amicably, he took down his warlike equipments which were hanging around the lodge and displayed them with great pride and self-importance. Among the rest was a most superb headdress of feathers. Taking this from its case, he put it on and stood before me, as if conscious of the gallant air which it gave to his dark face and his vigorous, graceful figure. He told me that upon it were the feathers of three war-eagles, equal in value to the same number of good horses. He took up also a shield gaily painted and hung with feathers. The effect of these barbaric ornaments was admirable, for they were arranged with no little skill and taste. His quiver was made of the spotted skin of a small panther, such as are common among the black hills, from which the tail and distended claws were still allowed to hang. The white shield concluded his entertainment in a manner characteristic of an Indian. He begged of me a little powder and ball, for he had a gun as well as bow and arrows, but this I was obliged to refuse, because I had scarcely enough for my own use. Making him, however, a parting present of a paper of vermilion, 
I left him apparently quite contented. Unhappily, on the next morning the white shield took cold and was attacked with a violent inflammation of the throat. Immediately he seemed to lose all spirit, and though before no warrior in the village had borne himself more proudly, he now moped about from lodge to lodge with a forlorn and dejected air. At length he came and sat down, close wrapped in his robe before the lodge of Reynal, but when he found that neither he nor I knew how to relieve him, he arose and stalked over to one of the medicine men of the village. This old impostor thumped him for some time with both fists, howled and yelped over him, and beat a drum close to his ear to expel the evil spirit that had taken possession of him. This vigorous treatment failing of the desired effect, the white shield withdrew to his own lodge, where he lay disconsolate for some hours. Making his appearance once more in the afternoon, he again took his seat on the ground before Reynal's lodge, holding his throat with his hand. For some time he sat perfectly silent, with his eyes fixed mournfully on the ground. At last he began to speak in a low voice. "'I am a brave man,' he said. "'All the young men think me a great warrior, and ten of them are ready to go with me to the war. I will go and show them the enemy.' Last summer the snakes killed my brother. I cannot live unless I revenge his death. Tomorrow we will set out, and I will take their scalps. The white shield, as he expressed this resolution, seemed to have lost all the accustomed fire and spirit of his look, and hung his head as if in a fit of despondency. As I was sitting that evening at one of the fires, I saw him arrayed in his splendid war-dress, his cheeks painted with the vermilion, leading his favorite war-horse to the front of his lodge. He mounted and rode round the village, singing his war-song in a loud, hoarse voice amid the shrill acclamations of the women. Then, dismounting, he remained for some minutes prostrate upon the ground, as if in an act of supplication. On the following morning I looked in vain for the departure of the warriors. All was quiet in the village until late in the afternoon, when the white shield, issuing from his lodge, came and seated himself in his old place before us. Reynal asked him why he had not gone out to find the enemy. "'I cannot go,' answered the white shield, in a dejected voice. "'I have given my war arrows to the Meneaska.' "'You have only given him two of your arrows,' said Reynal. "'If you ask him, he will give them back again.' For some time the white shield said nothing. At last he spoke in a gloomy tone. One of my young men has had bad dreams. The spirits of the dead came and threw stones at him in his sleep. If such a dream had actually taken place, it might have broken up this or any other war party. But both Reynal and I were convinced at the time that it was a mere fabrication to excuse his remaining at home. The White Shield was a warrior of noted prowess. Very probably he would have received a mortal wound without a show of pain, and endured without flinching the worst tortures that an enemy could inflict upon him. The whole power of an Indian's nature would be summoned to encounter such a trial. Every influence of his education from childhood would have prepared him for it. The cause of his suffering would have been visibly and palpably before him, and his spirit would rise to set his enemy at defiance, and gain the highest glory of a warrior by meeting death with fortitude. But when he feels himself attacked by a mysterious evil, before whose insidious assaults his manhood is wasted and his strength drained away, when he can see no enemy to resist and defy, 
the boldest warrior falls prostrate at once. He believes that a bad spirit has taken possession of him, or that he is the victim of some charm. When suffering from a protracted disorder, an Indian will often abandon himself to his supposed destiny, pine away, and die, the victim of his own imagination. The same effect will often follow from a series of calamities or a long run of ill success, and the sufferer has been known to ride into the midst of an enemy's camp or attack a grizzly bear single-handed to get rid of a life which he supposed to lie under the doom of misfortune. Thus, after all his fasting, dreaming, and calling upon the great spirit, the White Shield's war party was pitifully broken up. End of chapter 15